Ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary folks worldwide, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Cornbread Hemp. I'll keep it short and sweet because many of you know the deal by now. Cornbread Hemp is USDA organic certified CBD products made in the great state of Kentucky. Their stuff is great. I have used it now for years. It really helps me relax and focus, and it has really helped Callie manage her pain. They have a wide range of CBD products, including oil, balm, CBD oil for your pets, and my favorite, the gummies. They have two million milligrams up to two milligrams of THC the most allowed by federal law and they ship to all 50 states and U.S. territories you should really try some if you haven't already go to cornbreadhemp.com and use the promo code appodlatcha that's A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A for 25% off at checkout thanks and enjoy this week's show Mr. President is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, do not own the multi-billion dollar businesses that see why these guys get involved with that things? Is that fair? What do you think? I don't know the truth yet, but I know what's not the truth. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to... We are going to unearth so much truth on this show that the government is going to shut us down. There's a ton. All right, everybody, welcome to Apod Latcha. My name is Chuck Core. I'm joined, as always, directly in front of me. And how many miles away did we decide last time? 321? 300 and something, yeah. 300 and change away, the venerable Callie Pruitt. We've got a good show for you today. We've got an interview with Reform Rabbi Joe Blair of the Temple Israel in Charleston, West Virginia. I was not able to participate in the interview, but you did. And you talked with him about engaging the broader religious and cultural communities, as well as the Appalachian experience in Jewish placemaking. Very, very great interview we're excited to get into. And then we're going to be going through our top eight delightfully weird destinations in Appalachia, which you are not going to want to miss. That's coming up. Right after the intro and the intro today, Kelly, I know we're going to be talking real quick about student loans, but I have to dial back to something. All right. You recall, Play it on me. I will. You recall last week that we, we talked about the, the Charleston Dirty Birds minor league baseball team, and I brought up the fact that the Fredericksburg team, now the place that I'm currently living, they had kind of a lame name, the Fred Nats. Womp womp. It's a conspiracy. I have unearthed it's a conspiracy. Yes. All right. I have unearthed partial truth. I'm going to say partial truth. All right. Okay. And uh, would love for the fans, the people listening, to help me uncover the real truth here. And I'm probably going to get a lot of shit from people who live in Fredericksburg and are supportive of this name. And I'm just saying, don't come after me. But we talked about this because like, I look, you could have come up with any other name, right? Could be the, the, the trash pandas could have been the sheep squatch or anything. They come up with the Fred Nats. And I thought, okay, this is some bureaucratic billionaire decision of who owns the team. I look on the Wikipedia page, right? And it said this, and I immediately doubted everything. It said as part of the process to give the team a new name that included Fredericksburg, a name, the team contest that began in April, 2019, received more than 2,400 responses of ways to incorporate local history and culture into it. And on October 5th, the team announced that it had changed its name to the Fredericksburg Nationals. You're telling me. It's kind of a bummer, yeah. You're telling me that you opened this to the public 
and the public decided on that name. I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, there's something stinks. It look anytime that the internet opens the floor, open opens the opens the porthole, if you will, to allow people to name something. It never goes in a direction like that. There was a, I believe this was a a polar research ship in the UK that opened it up to the internet to name the ship. And uh, the internet named it Bodie McBoatface. That's real. That I believe. That is real. I, I believe that 100%. The National Article from the BBC. I don't believe. I, I agree with you. Every time that you open it up to the public, it's either it's it's something way more creative than the nationals. Why would you why would anybody nobody in America wants to be the same as another city? Like that's our whole thing is like rugged individualism and coming up with something creative and being our own like thing. There's no way that the public like was like, OK, yeah, we'll just name it after the Washington team. No way. No way. And it's it. So I don't believe it. I think it was a conspiracy because the surrounding towns have great names. You got the Lynchburg Hillcats. You've got the Richmond Flying Squirrels. All right. That's a good one. I like that. That's one. A great, it's got a great <laughs> logo, too. So this is I think it's a lie. I'm calling bullshit. I may even try to, to edit this article because I think it's false. I think it's fake fucking news. All right. So if anybody has the real deets, if anybody's got the real story, hit me up. Yeah, yeah. We our DMs are open. Open. Uh, the truth is out there, and we will find the truth. Also, yes, the Richmond Flying Squirrels have a great logo. Yeah, and they have a. They also have like a great um, like mascot for the actual games. It looks like a super like brand new, high quality like Mighty Mouse looking mascot. It's very cute. Yeah. Ugh, minor league baseball man. Fred Nats could have that, but they chose not. Somebody chose not to. I don't know. Yeah. Who. Oh, we'll find but- out. But before we get into our eight weird, wonderful, beautiful destinations, which are a lot of fun, let's talk real quickly about student loans, because that came in the news I think it's important to talk about. Joe Biden, Joseph Robinette Biden III, uh, had another streak of being dark Brandon and decided that he is going to do what? Y'all, we've been waiting a long time for this. Uh, We're getting some student loan forgiveness, finally. Asterisk. Yes, asterisk. <laughs> we'll explain the asterisk in a minute. <laughs> yes, yes, asterisk. So, okay, um, so the, the, the basic points are this. If you uh, are a federal borrower, you are going to have $10,000 um, of your debt uh, wiped out. Um, and if you are a Pell Grant recipient, you get $20,000 of your debt knocked out. Now, Pell Grants are, uh, most folks are, are familiar with them, but Pell Grants are... Um, certain like very, very particular student loans that are given to folks who um, make under a certain amount of money. So uh, if you are below a certain amount, if your family income is below a certain amount, then you are you qualify for Pell Grants. And so twenty thousand dollars of relief for the lowest income borrowers is huge. And ten thousand dollars to other folks um, like myself um, is is also so life changing. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's 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 I'm 
I am stoked on it. I am very excited. Uh, how do you feel, Chuck? I feel good about it. I, you know, you know, you wish it was more, but I think that this. I mean, it's what he campaigned on. So I don't think. I think this is like exactly what we could expect. And honestly, something I want to get into more is the details within, because I think the numbers, like the figures, are are kind of what takes the headlines. But there was a lot within this plan that I actually think could go through mm-hmm. even if the cancellation doesn't, that is really, really yeah. important. So first of all, you mentioned the forgiveness and there's an income level bar. The individuals making 125K or less or couples making 250K or less, um, those are the income restrictions on that. So one of the things that was important is they are doing, they did reforms to the new income-driven repayment system, which was a mess before, trust me, because I did it. So it's capping monthly payments to 5% of the discretionary income for undergraduate loan borrowers. So that used to be, I think, 10%. So you're only expected to pay up to 5% of your discretionary income, which is a big boost. That'll help limit monthly payments for people. And it's also going to cover the borrower's unpaid monthly interest so that debt balances will not grow even more when monthly payments are zero. That capitalized interest, I've been killed by that. It is terrible. That is going to be huge. Um, Raising the amount excluded from calculating the discretionary income on the poverty line. So um, it's going up from 150% of poverty level to 225. That's a big deal. And then forgiving loan balances after 10 years of payment instead of 20 years, which it currently is, if your balance is 12,000 or less. So if you've been paying on your loans for 10 years and you have a balance of 12,000 or less, that is also going to be forgiven. Um, there's there's a few more details which we may get into later, but I think the big big part is that that reform to the income driven repayment yeah. system. I think like and I don't know what the details are going to look like for it, but reforming how interest is done, it that's one of the biggest reasons people are in so much debt right now. And I can tell you this from personal experience. I when I first got out of college and in law school, I had a very low paying job. And my monthly payments, I did an income-driven repayment plan, and the monthly payments, which is all I could afford, went to cover maybe half of the interest. So my principal like went up over that year because the interest was then capitalized. And so like I did not make a dent at all into my principal loan amount for the first like year and a half, two years, I was yeah. out of school paying my loans. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's that's so huge that like that, that's happened all over the country for years and years and years that people will actually like be paying on their loans, but their loan debt continues to go up because of the compounding interest. So that's... Oh. One one last thing I wanted to mention is that the forbearance period has been extended through the end of the year rather than ending at the end of August. So yeah. nobody is expected to start repayments until I believe like January one, which is also huge. Yeah, that's and and I think that restarting payments with this plan in place is um, manageable for people. So they're starting loan repayments so that another bubble does not actually happen. So you're constantly going to have more and more federal borrowers. And so they have to do something to address uh, 
the 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 gap in actual income that they're going to receive the re- the whole reason that the united states does these federally guaranteed loans is that it was a big driver of revenue that's that they they were not always involved in student loan borrowing and so this has been a huge revenue stream um, as millions of people who have gotten their educations make payments on their student loans loans. Um, as they do that, that's going back into the government's pocket. And so the the, the stress behind this forgiveness, folks were, were worried that if they didn't start repayments again, that there would be this huge gap. And then as people started borrowing more and more and more, that there would be something like the housing bubble burst later on. And so this, this, uh, this plan really fits together like a puzzle piece in order to maintain um, revenue in but also prevent another bubble burst and so it's it's a it's it sounds like a really simple on on its face like oh ten thousand dollars gone or twenty thousand dollars gone but they've really structured this in a way that is likely going to be pretty sustainable over the long haul so yes i i agree with you and i think like a lot of these reforms even outside of just the debt cancellation are gonna make the system better systemically now there is larger problems with the system of of predatory loans that are not being addressed by this and and I think that they need to. I mean, this does not fix the problem. This is a band-aid on it, but it's a place to start and that's really really important. Now, let's get to the uh wet blanket a bit. We don't know what the chances are of at the very least the debt cancellation even going into place. That's the thing that I think needs to be talked about more. There's going to be significant court challenges to this. President Biden himself has admitted in the past that he does not have the power as the president to do this. And that's not going to be going in his favor in a court challenge. And I think a lot of other people mentioned that too, Um, which certainly this would have been better if Congress had done it. Um, It would have been way, way, way more likely to pass. Yeah. And I'm afraid, I'm worried that there's going to be legal challenges to it, particularly because of the most recent... Uh, West Virginia versus EPA decision by the Supreme Court where they said that, um, you know, I I think it's like a a federal or the administrative agency executive branch can't make wide ranging decisions that affect the economy such and such without Congress doing it. I mean, that's sort of the long and short of it. Um, And this is Supreme Court is not going to be friendly to something like this. So I'm very worried that something like this could not even get implemented now. I'm wondering, though, yeah. if that would limit to the debt cancellation, but some of the other reforms would stay in place because those are more discretionary. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think that what we're going to see in the coming months and years is this is the very beginning of figuring this out. Um I I need folks to remember this is step one. This is not the end. Like student loan forgiveness is not a one day check a box thing. It's something that that policies and standards and um, precedents have to be set on. And I think that this is certainly a positive step. This is certainly a step in the right direction. Um, and I think that we have to continue. One of the one of the great things about student loan forgiveness is that there is a huge and very uh 
I wouldn't say rabid, but passionate base of support for it. There, there are some people that this is their only issue. This is the issue that gets them involved in politics. And so I think that those people are not going to go away. They're not going to be quiet. Um, and you shouldn't. You should not take this as face value and not not think about it ever again. We're going to need continued um, support for this and you know, continued support going out and voting based on this step in the right direction. Um, we'll need to continue giving, you know, uh, basically government is a feedback loop. And if you like what Joe Biden is doing, if you like dark Brandon, um, then then continue to vote for these um, progressive folks who are in office and continue to be very outspoken about these issues that matter to you. Because what this proves is that there are people at the highest levels of government listening. And if we continue to be a voice on this, it's it's only going to benefit the process long term. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to keep track of this because we obviously are both very personally invested in it. So we'll be keeping you all updated. But let's pivot. I mean, this has been kind of, a, you know, upsy downsy type deal. Let's get to some lighthearted stuff, shall we? Let's do a let's do a, a list. Why not? Lighthearted, of course, yeah. The top eight delightfully weird destinations in Appalachia, as you all have probably cobbled together at this point, we've uh, kind of flipped it, reversed it, done a little remix on on our beginning segments for this show. We're going to be incorporating lists a lot into our shows coming up just because they're fun. They're fun, and we like them, and we like ranking shit. And so sometimes they're going to be political, sometimes they're going to be apolitical, but you know what they're always going to be about? Appalachia. Yep. And today And our opinions. <laughs> oh, and that's right. Yeah. There's there's never gonna be a a an absence of that. We're never yeah. gonna be scarcity in opinions here. Eight delightfully weird destinations in Appalachia. Callie, you came up with this idea and you had some really good picks here. Uh, I would love for you to get us started with number eight because it's a doozy and it's one that I have never ever heard of. And one thing I will say before we get started, if you're not watching on YouTube. Uh, please check out YouTube because we'll be including pictures and stuff from these places. So it'll be a little bit more better experience for you, even though I think the audio medium will be just fine. I really like how you said more better, just like in Sunny. Fuck. Um, I, I just leave it in there. It's, I am a grammar (laughs) idiot. Just so everybody knows. Um, all right, everybody. This one, this first one, I really, I started us out with um, a uh, a bang or maybe even a tornado because, hello, oh, we are in shit. the land of Oz. Number eight is the Land of Oz theme park in Beach Mountain, North Carolina. This place opened in 1970 and actress Debbie Reynolds with Carrie Fisher, she's the one we all know, uh, Princess Leia cut the ribbon on this bitch. Wait, wait, what, what the fuck? Was Debbie Reynolds in Wizard no, of Oz? No, I, I think that they just wanted a movie star <laughs> to cut the room. Oh, okay. I was gonna, that was going to really throw me for a loop. Like, no. okay, Carrie Fit, like Princess Leia's mom was in it. Like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. No, you're Billy good. Lord's grandma. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> yes. So uh, the idea of the theme park is that you are Dorothy when you enter the doors. Um, and so you would experience the tornado that struck her house. You would walk down the yellow brick road, visit with okay. the scarecrow and the tin man. And the Cowardly Lion, and then of course, you know, you battle the Wicked Witch of the West. So it seems like it was a, it was pretty dope. Um, I it I am looks into dope. It. 
Yeah. And there's a legit yellow brick road. Have you been, how close is this to where you grew up, Beach Mountain, North Carolina? So it's actually really close to Appalachian State University, where I went to college. Um, and so. And Boone, okay. Yeah. They're only open a few weekends a year now. Um, <sighs> they have some dates coming up if you want to look them up. Um, but they do like Halloween weekends and things like that. And so there's like a lot of students from App State who go. I have never been, but there's like a cult following for this place that's that's so cool okay i did not i had no idea this was here it feels like it's something that should be in kansas but i'm glad it's in beautiful western north carolina i would if i if i had gone to app state uh for undergrad i would have applied to be the cowardly lion i think i think i, I could have really embraced that role i'm, I'm upset that yeah. i never had the opportunity but this is this is great i i'm actually want to go here i really do it looks fucking awesome yeah, uh, number one, I would have cast you in that. You would have been great for Thank it. Thank you. And I yeah, appreciate that. Seems like a place that you should definitely check out. Are you ready to move on to number seven? Yeah, let's let's do it. That was a fun one. Number seven. Okay, this is wild shit. I have not been to this place. Really wanted to go for a long time. Lots of you will probably have heard of it, especially if you're in West Virginia. Number seven, Green Bank Telescope and also Green Bank, West Virginia, the town mm -hmm. that it's in. Green Bank in kind of like a remote part of Pocahontas County, West Virginia, for those of you familiar. Kelly, uh, you are a new West Virginia, new-ish West Virginia resident. Have you ever heard of a, a certain man named Senator Robert Carlisle Byrd? It seems like I never stop seeing that name. I feel like every single thing in West Virginia that like took money to build has his name on it. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It's probably like 90% him and then like 10% Jay Rockefeller. Yeah, like they have the, the courthouse in Charleston, the roads, the bridges. It's all, all bird. All big dad, big daddy bird, Senator Robert C. Bird. A reformed man used to be a member of the KKK, which does not hit. Fucked up. Nope. Bad part of his life. He, I think, you know, I think tried to repent for that and a lot of what he did later in his life. But, you know, it's a stain on his legacy. Anyway, Robert Byrd got a lot of money for the state. Somehow the Green Bank Telescope is named after him. I didn't really figure out how that is true since it's the Green Bank Telescope. But it's the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part about it, it's a giant, massive fucking telescope. And yeah. the, the town has a federally mandated lack of technology, meaning you can't bring... I don't even think you can bring a cell phone. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no internet, no nothing, because I guess it would interfere with the telescope. And uh, it's wild. And you you have a background in science. Uh, tell us I your do. thoughts. Give us give us some details here. Oh, well, one question for you first. I I Does nobody live there? Do, do people there are people live that live there, I believe. But they're like not allowed to have cell phones? I would really like to know answers on that because that would be, they're definitely there for some CIA shit if that's true. Info at Appalachia.com. According to Wikipedia, this says there's 141 people there. All right. Um, and it says that. Seems that real. Uh, it is located within the National Radio Quiet Zone, which means that radio transmissions are heavily restricted by law and it's enforced. Holy shit by radio policemen who use specialized equipment to detect signals from unauthorized electronics. What? This is a wild what? shit. This is like, oh my gosh, I just, please play, play the X-Files or Stranger Things music behind us for this one. This is 
crazy. So, okay, I did. I did not know uh, that there were people in that town. That's great. But I did know a couple of things about this telescope. So it, it's actually been super uh involved in a ton of discoveries and some of the cooler ones are that in 2002 astronomers detected three new millisecond pulsars Sounds sexy. um which are like in yes they 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 literally spin at stars like around and around and around and around like that fast it's insane so yeah um and then in 2006 several discoveries were announced including a large coil-shaped magnetic field which is very cool in the orion molecular cloud which is a super bubble um there's a a hydrogen gas super bubble that is 23,000 light years away very cool very cool i can't imagine that um but i'm really interested in aliens i don't know about you um I believe, yeah, Love no, I, I'm a believer, 100%. So I believe, I believe, for those listening above, I do believe we are friends. Spare us when yes. you come to, to wreak havoc yes, on Earth. Yes, uh, I'm a Star Trek fan, so... Um, Prime Directive, potentially. I don't know. Some people will get that joke. <laughs> Amazing. So this telescope is a key facility of the Breakthrough Listen Project, um, which used its the telescope to scan for radio signals possibly emitted by extraterrestrial technologies. And in late 2017, the telescope was used to scan Oumuamua for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, you guys will remember this as the, the object that was in the... Uh, the outskirts of our solar system going by that the um like the uh harvard astronomer professor actually wrote the book extraterrestrial extraterrestrial about Oumuamua and it is kind of like disputed as the first real signs of alien life um but this guy this literally a harvard astronomer wrote a book about how he thinks that that was alien life and that book was made into the major motion picture et directed by steven <laughs> spielberg you heard it here first just kidding number six this one is um what i'd call a dark horse maybe of this list or or throw it out there a dark groundhog we're talking about gobbler's knob in punxsutawney pennsylvania oh gobbler's knob that is quite the name gobbler's knob um not a name of a porn movie that i know of but uh could be could be wrong probably actually probably i want to just I'm going to say it. <laughs> it probably is. And if it's not, yeah. if there's not a porn-themed Groundhog it's Day a, movie, it's then... A, no, no, no. I actually think that Gobbler's Knob would be... And you can cut this. <laughs> or not. I don't know. <laughs> Gobbler's Knob would actually be a Thanksgiving porno. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Uh <laughs> Unless you tell me not to, that's I do think I think it's brilliant. I think um, I mean it would not shock me if that shows up on Thanksgiving on a porn site <laughs> near you. So Gobbler's Knob, I've actually I legitimately have always wanted to go here for Groundhog Day because and look, we've said this before, we'll say it again. Punxsutawney Phil is the Groundhog for Groundhog's Day. And he is from Appalachian, Pennsylvania. God bless his soul. May he live on forever. Um, this is a very special place. It's uh, it's where Punxsutawney Phil does emerge from his little burrow and greets the world on February 2nd every year to predict whether we're going to see six more weeks of winter or not. 
And, um, you know, it's a special place. And I'm assuming that people in and around that area really treasure it. I would love to go there. I'd love to see Punxsutawney Phil. I've been trying to get him on this show for an interview for a better part of three years now. Uh, His PR team is very brutal, so we haven't had a chance to get there. But we're trying. Yeah, I I appreciate your effort on that front. That is um, that's an important interview that I feel like uh, we should definitely keep after. What unites America more than that? I mean, no, nothing. The answer is nothing. Well, I actually do have an answer, and uh, it's number five in his dinosaurs. Oh my gosh! Yes, backyard <laughs> terror dinosaur uh, park, <laughs> Bluff City, Tennessee, a beautiful place in Johnson County, or excuse me, a beautiful place in Sullivan County, just north of Johnson City. Callie, uh, what's been your experience so far in life with dinosaurs? Wow. <laughs> hell of a question um for me yeah it is uh dinosaurs really came to prevalence in my life when i was president of the appalachian uh mountaineer organization of student scientists we called it moss club okay um and so i was the only social scientist in the group and there was a paleontologist in the group who had done a ton of research on this certain like crocodile like uh, dinosaur and nice. the purpose of Moss Club was to like share interdisciplinary knowledge with each other so he would give these talks about this crocodile dinosaur all the time and the difference between its toes and another species so like I, I happen to know a lot about that one crocodile <laughs> it sounds weird um, but awesome dinosaur yeah but like other than that like the land before time probably land before time fucking hits so hard Oh yeah. my God! Like Littlefoot, that sta- it stands up. Yeah, it it has stood the test of time. Unlike many other things, there's also a great movie. We're back uh, yeah. about these big ass fucking dinosaurs in a city. It's wild shit. You should check it out. Yeah. Um, but this that's a Thanksgiving movie, right? It absolutely. I mean, it, it it if it's not, it should be. Yeah, uh, I think it is. But Backyard Terror Dinosaur Park, don't let the terror deter you because it's actually amazing. It's a self-guided walking path featuring homemade scale replicas of dinosaurs designed based on recent scientific findings, whatever that means. Started in 2007, the owner, Chris Kastner, said, quote, It was a dream of mine that started out wanting a life-size dinosaur and presumably... Who doesn't? Who literally doesn't? I mean, if you're a kid... Well, okay, if you could, if you could have a dinosaur... What one would you pick? Fuck, I knew you were going to ask that as soon as you started, and I don't know. Hold on, hold on, let me think, let me think, let me think. Well, okay, so there's a lot of considerations here. I mean, a Brachiosaurus could be kind of fun. A raptor could be very helpful and protective, but it may turn on you, as I've seen in, in many of movies. Pterodactyl would be pretty dope. Um, T-Rex would be helpful. Oh. Yeah. I would say a pterodactyl. I'm going to go alt. That's, I'm going to go alt and say pterodactyl. I like it. I like it. So in my mind, like pterodactyls are kind of like just ancient bats and bats are so cute. Like, I don't know if you've seen. If I've you already fucked up. You're right. Shit. Wildlife. If you follow any of the, they're so cute. So for me, what I like, I think I'm going to pick a, like a better one um, <laughs> than you. <laughs> mine was Bush League. Fuck. All right, go ahead. I'm going to modify so mine. I've fucked I up. I would personally pick um, a Triceratops because... 
I could walk my triceratops as a woman anywhere that I would want and nobody would ever fuck with me. And that thing is a vegetarian. And so it wouldn't eat me. It wouldn't kill me and it would protect me. And so I, uh, I imagine, you know, Sarah was kind of, she was kind of, she was kind of a jerk, but like, I imagine not all triceratops are, are like yeah, that. So she, that would be mine. She was like a total bitch. I mean, in that movie. She was like an older sister. I mean, I feel like we all, we probably would watch it again and be like, yeah, that's just older sisters. You know what? I actually am going to mod my answer. I'm going to say Brachiosaurus. It's a pretty good one. Gentle Giants. Yeah. Gentle yeah, they're, Giants. They're what they call in the land before time. They're the long necks, right? Long necks. Hell yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, Titanic creatures. Yes. Um, Love it. And, and so like, um, I kind of feel like I embody that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, minus the long neck. Uh, what I will say, though, is I, I love this place. I've never been. I love it already, though. And it's because of like how they describe it on the website. They made a point of saying that they have a picnic area where the local Pizza Plus delivers. And oh I just God. love that little nugget of locality there. It was fun. Yeah. They're like, um, they want they want to accommodate you. So it's just hospitality. Hell yeah. That. And supporting local businesses. That's right. Yeah. And, and so since... It. Since they've opened, they put together a plethora of themes, including pirates, monsters, dinosaurs, aliens, and you name it, who knows? They also do rentals, which I'm very curious what they actually rent out. And I Like a dinosaur I, wedding? Like you I, they would rent out potentially? Fuck. Okay. I I wish I would have postponed my wedding like four years so I could have done this. I don't actually, think Kristen would have agreed, but I, I really want to have a wedding. Am, there. I actually am thinking of something that might be even better than a wedding there. Okay. Let it rip. A bar mitzvah. <laughs> Can you imagine a bar mitzvah in like the, a dinosaur park? It would be so dope. And you got all these like 13 year olds running around. Yeah. Smashing glass. Yeah. No, like doing but the like, baruchatas. But like if you were the kid, if you were the kid who hosted your bar mitzvah at the dinosaur park, like you'd be the shit. Yes. That would be a lot of fun. Number four. Millennium Manor in Alcoa, Tennessee. Now, Chuck, I had never heard of this place before I did research for this particular list. And I got deep into the history of what Millennium Manor is and like what these people were thinking because, whoa. Okay, so this guy named William Nicholson believed in biblical Armageddon. He was convinced that it would happen in his lifetime. He was born in 1877, by the way, and that afterward he would be one of the 144,000 righteous souls who would live on earth after Jesus another 1,000 years. First of all, where did they get the figure 144,000? I don't recall that in the Bible. I, I don't, don't know. That. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do have a comment after you, you get past this. But um, it, first of all, 1877, though, I will say not a lot of great things happening then, I don't think. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Alcoa, Tennessee later became a company town uh, for a, a yeah. aluminum smelting company. So um, this is kind yeah. of fun. Uh, but yes, please, please yeah, do indulge. So it, it, it gets worse. It gets worse and more interesting. It gets better, actually. From So from 1938 to 1946, Bill and M Affair, both in their 60s at this point, let's remember, <laughs> um, started to make this house and it was supposed to be apocalypse proof. 
It's supposed to be a, a, a quote, thousand year fortress. Um, he told a reporter in 1957, here's another quote. I, this is one of my favorites. I believe in preparing to live instead of preparing to die. Well, first of all, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, and I think that that is a quote to live by. But I do have to say, I smell a grift here. Okay. This guy clearly is not a dyed-in-the-wool Bible thumper because he would see the contradiction in his efforts here. Armageddon is synonymous with the end of the world. So what you're telling me is this guy is building an end-of-the-world-proof fortress? He's trying to defy Jesus Christ himself? Call him bullshit. That's a great point. So, yeah, uh... They spent a lot of money on this gimmick. These two literal senior citizens, literal AARP members. I mean, I don't know. AARP did, probably didn't exist back then. But um, they... Well, they would be. They qualify. They carried hundreds of tons of boulders into place, and they they mortared it all together with 4,000 bags of cement. 50 years later, okay? So, like, close to 2,000. They're, they brought in like a castle expert for, for medieval castles and he examined this place and he said that it was overbuilt by 250%, meaning that two additional Millennium Manors could be safely stacked on top of it. I, by the time that they brought this guy in, these two fair souls, Bill and Emma, they were dead because they were born in 1877 or something like that. So they were dead and they did not get to see the completion of their palace or it's not really pal their 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 fortress. Fortress of Christ. So first of all, uh, they probably died because they were two geriatric god groupies who were trying to haul 4000 bags of cement around which <laughs> how how do you get access to that many bags of cement at that time? I honestly don't know. Also, I want to meet this castle expert guy because I, yeah. I bet you he is just such a a a conceited condescending asshole which i love and i'm not saying that about it. it's almost endearing like a smug sommelier <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it's like a sommelier but for castles yeah yeah so <laughs> what a but what a bunch of fucking idiots they could have built two <laughs> dumb asses so after these, after these two dumbasses died, <laughs> <laughs> this guy, a firefighter, because nobody wanted this place, literally a firefighter named Dean Fontaine. Great name. Uh, bought this place. Yeah, great, great name. He bought it. And he often had to sleep there during the day. I guess that's why he wanted to get it, because, like, you can't hear anything. And um, <laughs> he... <laughs> You just this is like proven because a tornado passed directly over the building in 2006 while he was sleeping and he slept through it. Honestly, that's a strong, strong uh, selling point. Good, really? Yes. Good job, Emma and Bill. You survived so a tornado. You slept through it. That's great. Yeah. Dean said a plane could crash through the roof and you wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. First of all, um, you would because you'd die. <laughs> But I do respect Dean Fontaine. Great name. Very sexy name. Uh, I yeah. would say, like, uh, you know, I, I admire his commitment to not wanting to be fucking bothered. And so he buys yeah. this fortress. It really is a fortress of solitude for Dean. 
And yeah. um, so I respect that. And you have shared pictures here. And there is one picture, I'm assuming it's of William and Emma, the people who are building mm-hmm. it. And I will share yeah. it on our YouTube. It is horrifying, in my opinion, because <laughs> it looks like it's taken from the bottom of a, a stair set. It looks like a picture, yeah. like it's the last thing you would see before these two locked you in a cellar permanently. It's yeah. got a lot of um, Jody Arias vibes for, for all the, yes. the true crime is, people out there. It is the scariest, like, husband and wife portrait. It's it's everything that you hate about old pictures. So, like, creepy eyes that are dark and, like like suspenders and clothes that look really old so you like can't really place it in time and it's just got this like very eerie quality to it it looks like an appalachian mama and papa but that would kill you which is kind of fun i will say yeah kind of fun. yeah it's got it's a vibe it's a vibe it's a, all right check vibe. we are down to the top or to the bottom three to the top three i i feel like top we're three down top to three like, yeah yeah top three top three all right <laughs> this one doozy I am about to pop the fuck off because this one is the American Museum of the House Cat, and I have three of those. You have three museums or three cats? Childless Cat Lady. <laughs> this seems like a museum tailored for you, and it's in Western North Carolina, which... It, yeah. It, have you been to it? I mean, Silva... I haven't been to... I didn't know it existed Holy until I did all this research. Holy shit. Okay, because Silva yeah. is very close to you. It's or your, so your, close your to me. Or your hometown, rather. Yes. So it's in Silva, North Carolina, and this it's, it's not only this museum, my own personal heaven, and it is the private lifelong collection of... My future best friend, Dr. Harold (laughs) Sims and his wife, um, they have been advocates for animals forever, like 60 years, um, and they just love cats, and they decided to make this museum. I love the... First of all, I'm not even making fun. I love these people. They seem like genuinely wonderful people, and I want to get to know them. Yeah, unlike unlike Bill and Emma, their photographs, like, real... It's just endears you straight to them. They're lovely. uh, Dr. Sims? has a cat bolo tie and i'm so cute that's a vibe i'm into first of all though i would like to know that when you google this at least for me when i googled it the first result i got from googling museum of the american house cat is an article from romanticashville.com which i thought was funny but at the same time like i feel like you that would be i would be into that yeah that would be a romantic trip for you yeah, I would be like, oh, my God, Danny, you actually are going to this place that you'll hate because it's full of cat figurines. <laughs> this is such an act of love. <laughs> the display image, though, that came up on Google, for me at least, was a cat holding a ruler. And it kind of looked like he was a character from The Sopranos and the ruler was a, like a Garrett Wire or something. <laughs> and it's a very, very New Jersey gangster to me. But it is, does look kind of fun. And this is, um, I feel like... Uh, I want to go just for the genuine curiosity. Yeah, it looks like it's a lot of fun. They've got like cat memorabilia. Of course, there are figurines, but they've got like really amazing art too, just like from incredible painters. And so they say that their their collection, they aim to give back joy and inspiration to cat lovers and art lovers. And you can't get better than that. So actually, I can't, I can't get better than that because I had one I had one final thing that makes this place like truly cat heaven. They adopt cats out. Shut the fuck up. Like they they have a shelter there for cats and they adopt them out. This guy is just like a dream. has 
He is like 90 years old and an absolute dream. Dr. Harold, come on our show. Well, I've, I've been toying around this idea for a while where we do like certified Appalachian units. Oh, I and love he, that. He's a certified Appalachian unit, him and his wife, um, right there. Dr. Sims, what a, what a G, honestly. I love this yeah. guy. And I'm not even like a huge fan of, like I like cats, I'm fine with them. It's not like, like a super big passion for me, but I just respect what he's doing. I think it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's very wholesome. Go him. Uh, so another place that I feel like we're going to definitely, definitely have to make a trip to talk <sighs> yes. with, with our spouses, because like I can't imagine going to this place without Danny and Kristen. The Unclaimed Baggage Center in Scottsboro, Alabama. Have you heard of this place? Fuck yes. Number two, Unclaimed Baggage Center, Scottsboro, Alabama. I have not. So I actually, well, I think I kind of heard of it. I knew that there was a place that where unclaimed baggage from flights went, but I didn't know anything past that. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting. They have this process. So it's not like you lose your baggage and then like three days later it ends up at this place. So there's a very, very long process. It's three months long that they go through where they search for the owner. Yeah, and make sure that it's like truly, truly lost for good. And then they auction it off. And this place buys like a lot of it. And so... Fun fact, it's about 0.03% of all baggage gets is, is like this. So um, it, it purchases all of this and puts them in the store and they have an online store. You should definitely check it out. But they like don't know what's going to be in the bags when they get them. It's like storage unit wars. And so like you bid on something and then and you, you get what oh, you get. Oh, shit. I did not know that. That's what. Yeah. How has this not been a it's TV crazy. show? It's crazy. It's the coolest. And so they have found things. They've like opened up these these unclaimed bags and found things uh, like Egyptian burial masks. What? Live rattlesnakes. Okay. Shrunken heads. Wait, this gets even better. <sighs> Unicycles. And my favorite, a Stradivarius violin. Those are nice. Found in one of these right? Those are like sometimes millions of yeah. dollars. I think I saw that it on like an episode insane. of Pawn Stars, which is a... Yeah. Silly show, but I mean, they, yeah. Um, first of all, who the fuck doesn't come back for their bag that has an Egyptian burial mask in it? I, I, you know, there have to be a lot of these travel oddities because people go and they get their souvenirs. But like, what kind of person can just be like, oh yeah, the hundred thousand dollar Egyptian burial mask? I don't really need it. You mentioned live rattlesnakes. Does that mean a rattlesnake can live for three months without like any sustenance in a small contained environment? It, yeah, it probably oh, just shit. ate right before it went in. Yeah, snakes can go a long time. I don't know if it's three months, but they can go a long time. This is wild to me. First of all, I want to go here so fucking bad. I think that we need to yeah. make a Apodlatcha group trip there and... We need to participate in an auction, and then we will live stream yes. it for our fans. I'm into yes. this, yes. and I hope it's something cool. I hope it's like a rattlesnake. That'll be so fucking cool if we got a live rattlesnake. That would be amazing. It would be such a bummer if it was just like Hawaiian yeah. t-shirts and denim shorts. <laughs> I mean, I'd wear it. I'd wear it for the fans, but yes, that would be lame. I would too. I would too. It would be uh, ridiculous, but we would have to. They have a ton of other stuff listed on their site. Really go check it out, y'all. It's like a very interesting website. And they have obviously a lot of clothes, but they also have a lot of oddities and collectibles and yeah. stuff like that too. It's like an alt eBay 
And yes, it's in beautiful totally. Appalachian, Alabama. Amazing. Are you ready for number one? I do think I'm ready because I feel like I'm prepared. We've, we've done the Unclaimed Baggage. We've done the American Cat Museum. We've done the Dinosaur Park. I think I'm ready for number one, and I, I'm just ready for you to lay it on this me. This one was a state secret. <sighs> this is Jim why... Justice's. Is- Sorry, can't sorry. Say that. <laughs> no, we cannot. No, we cannot. Number one, congressional fallout shelter at the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Until 1992, this place went by a number of code names in, in the federal government. Project X, Project Casper, and lastly, Project Greek Island. Like that and one. And it was... Yeah, it's very interesting. So it was a state secret to the the regular American public. So it was constructed and able to protect all of Congress, all 535 of them. They were supposed to be able to go to this place in the case of a nuclear event. And the shelter's actually like right underneath the resort. So it's like the big building that you see, it's like directly underneath. So the, this was is. only public... It's only been made public since 1992. Yeah. That's wild. I didn't realize that. That's so it's interesting. It's so recently. Yeah, so this this thing has a whole lot going on. A whole lot going on. So during its uh, its era of usage, it provided these like amazing amenities for all of the people who were potentially going to go there because everything got destroyed. So has four entrances a 25 ton blast door that only moves with like 50 pounds of pressure, which is crazy. I can't even imagine the physics behind that. Um, it has decontamination chambers, 18 dormitories, a power plant inside of it with purification equipment, three 25,000 gallon water tanks, um, communications offices and television television production areas so like if the president was there and had to like deliver an address to the nation um it has a clinic with hospital beds and medical care and an operating room laboratories pharmacies intensive care units a cafeteria and finally meeting rooms for the house and senate but chuck you know what it doesn't have uh no room for any spouses or family son of a bitch i bet you a lot of members of congress like that though because there's a lot of cheating sons of bitches in there yeah, so it was only meant for uh, the, a, a member of Congress and one member of their staff. And so they were supposed to, like, peace out to this this bunker that would prevent them from being annihilated in the inevitable nuclear holocaust. And they were supposed to be like, okay, bye, family. You go find shelter uh, elsewhere. <laughs> I First of all, like, I'm out. If I'm a member of Congress, at least for me personally, first of all, I would never be one because never. it sounds like the worst fucking job on the face of the planet. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it would be. Um, but I no, I'm out. Because, like, Kristen, if she ain't coming with me, then I'm not going. I'd rather die. I, I just yeah. would rather die. But this is. But I think a lot of members of Congress probably would because they're sociopaths. Many of them are. Not all of them, but many of them are. And so yeah. this is wild to me. That I'm very proud that this is built in West Virginia. I do believe I heard lore at one point that it was built in West Virginia because it was sort of unassuming, like, 
a place that you yeah. wouldn't really expect, which is kind of cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean, it is an interesting part of history. I, I regrettably have not ever been to the Greenbrier or the Bunker, and I've really, really wanted to go. I know it's owned by Jim Justice. I don't give a shit. Uh, yeah, fuck that guy. It's a great place. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful place. Reese love Witherspoon yeah. goes there, and that's a reason enough for me to frequent that place because, you know, I love her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting piece of history, especially yeah. uh, for West Virginia. And it is interesting that they built an entire facility. This is also like, the, you know, this goes into the whole continuity of government idea when you think of, um, I, I don't know, I'm sure there's people out there that watch the uh, designated, what is it, designated survivor, that show where... Yeah, yeah, I've seen Where they one, do yeah. every time there's a State of the Union and the entire presidential cabinet attends it in, 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 in the, the Capitol building, there's always one that stays behind in case it's a massive attack. It's very much a continuity of government thing. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, it's pretty shitty for all those members of Congress that they all have to make a decision to leave their families. But... Um, I just think it's fascinating, and uh, and I would love to go there. It actually is, of all these places, it's probably like the top on my list, aside from the... Di- Honestly, no. You know what? I think they're all they're all top. Dinosaur Park. Yeah. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. So please, everybody, everybody should go. Um, start patronizing these places. They are really awesome. We're going to. It's we've still got a little bit of summer left. We're gonna hit a couple of these for sure. We're we're taking this show on the road. It's gonna be amazing. So uh, I hope that you all enjoyed this list. It was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, it was a blast. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know your thoughts, if we got it right or what we missed, because we're going to be doing more lists, and we got some other crazy shit we're going to put into it. But let us know. Give us your thoughts. Uh, include it in the comment section on YouTube or um, send us an email, info at Appalachia.com, and let us know. All right, uh, let's get into some announcements before we uh, we go into our interview. We have some announcements about our Patreon uh, patreon.com slash appodlatch you can donate uh, to us every month so we can keep this show going and we try to do limericks every week for new members and some for old members and you've got a couple for some of our long-term members patrick and marielle yes yes i was able uh once again to gather some intel so i hope that you guys like these first off we're going to patrick our old friend deserves a limerick is it the Krusty Krab? No, it's Patrick. He's a Bama fan, a real man's man. And if you ever need a helping hand, he has it. Beautiful. I, yes, I, I was really glad to be able to throw a SpongeBob reference in there. Always. I know. I'm sorry, Patrick. You probably get it a lot. Um, all right, Marielle. A little bit, a little bit less of a of a of a common name. Had to really think on some of these, but I'm really I'm I'm actually quite proud of the rhymes in this one. I'm I, I, I we can we can revisit it after I read it, but I'm I'm really happy about this one. Raise your glasses, one and all, to Marielle, a hillbilly hero. Can't you tell? She's been around since the beginning. OG politic and grinning, and she's always there to help us give it hell. Good stuff. That was a little little uh, tidbit there. Mm-hmm. A little sneak peek at some rebranding. Ooh-hoo. Oh, yes. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you both, Patrick and Marielle, for your long-time support, and thank you to our other Patreon members. And again, you can join for as little as a dollar a month or whatever you want to pay, and it can help us out. We really appreciate it, and uh, we use it for good things. Uh, let's get into our interview. Callie, do you want to give our folks a little bit of background into this interview with uh, Rabbi Joe Blair? Yeah, absolutely. Um 
So I, I've really wanted to kind of dive into some religious minorities throughout the region. Um, and this is a, a hint of, of other future episodes to come. But um, I, I thought this was a great place to start. So I, I called up Rabbi Joe Blair. He was more than willing to talk to us. And I had a really insightful conversation with him um, talking about the Jewish experience in Appalachia. Um, He mentions, you know, some things like what it's like to to have really sacred holidays and not get those days off um, and and what that feels like in a place that doesn't even, you know, most people don't even know what Rosh Hashanah is, let alone that it's a high holiday. Um, Talking about... uh, experiences with anti-Semitism. One of the most hopeful things that I I heard in the interview from him was that on a person-to-person basis, his community feels very welcome in in Appalachia and in West Virginia. Um, and, it, and it is more as a unit that Jewish people are experiencing anti-Semitism. And so that was a really interesting conversation to dive into um, about the nuances of that. Um, and then talking about how, you know, th- this this to me was an important way to kind of wrap the interview. But we talked about you know, what is his message to folks who may not feel like they belong here? And so that's just a little taste of what we got into. I hope that you take the time to listen to it. You know, stay tuned because this was a really, really fascinating interview. Yeah, I think so, too. And I was sad I wasn't a part of it, but I really enjoyed listening to it. So let's get into our interview with Rabbi Joe. I actually am quite interested in what drew you to be a rabbi. I think that that's quite uh, quite an interesting thing, you know. And so, uh, if you if you don't mind, I would love to hear a little bit about why you became a rabbi. Okay, I know you can edit this, so you can. Yes, we can. If if there's any parts, yes. But I had no interest in being a rabbi at all. In fact, as most people, I, I wound up growing up being educated and and taught in uh, the religious school. I had a, a full bar mitzvah, and and at the age of thirteen, after that bar mitzvah, I attended services a little bit, but basically, my participation in most formal activities dropped off. And family events continued. They still do to this day. But but at this point, you know, I, I, that was the end of my formal Jewish affiliation in many ways, um, as I think is true for so many people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was in college and found that there was no sort of family support, no, no sense, that I wound up mm-hmm. deciding that, that I sort of missed some of it, at least, you know, the camaraderie and meals um, around the Sabbath. And, and so I wound up getting involved in Hillel and and doing more and more uh, things with them and eventually wound up being involved to the point that I, I had an, an official position with them for a little while as a student. Um, we moved to the Northern Virginia area. I wound up being married but at the end of my college career. And um, and that's where I was working as a, a technical person in computers and uh, system design. And we lived in, as I said, the Herndon and Reston area, 
there was a, a congregation there, but it was not close to where we were living. So um, there turned out to be about seven families that were looking to find a way to establish their own little synagogue. And uh, I became involved with them in large measure. And I don't know, I'm not sure I'm a joiner or I'm a sucker, which one, but one of the two. And um, they wound up with me as a ritual chair, which means basically schlepping chairs and <laughs> out books. Um, and I did that for a number of years and and they were able to grow and thrive and get to the point where they could hire a rabbi. And I was involved in that selection process. And I really got involved in what was going on in the, the services, and, you know, continued as ritual chair and, and a large part of that. Um, dabbled in a position I was totally unfit for, which was treasurer which thank God I didn't stay long or they would have been in dire straits. <laughs> but, but the fact is, after I left there, um, I continued to work for many years after, you know, as a, in the, the computer field. Um, but I recognized that what was happening was the work I was doing was satisfactory. I was happy. I was getting a reasonably good salary. I wasn't suffering in any way. I could see myself continuing. But it wasn't actually something that nourished me. It didn't make me feel good. Um, and the work I did building community with that other group of families did. And so mm -hmm. through that, I wound up recognizing that what my passion was was really having to do with Judaism and and the sense of building community and creating opportunity for ritual and and for community growth and and formation so I went back to rabbinical school and that's you know that was the break that's when I quit that's when I went off to school and I spent um, five years I I conflated it I was in a six-year program and um it was uh intense. It was you know, really tough, but it was also really rewarding in its own right. And when I came out, there was an opening and, and there was a call for someone to serve as the director of Duke Hillel, mm -hmm. um, as the rabbi there. And I did that. So that's that's how I got into it. But basically, being a rabbi was a, a way of creating community and having a sense of connection to people around ritual. And yeah. That's what it was. And and frankly, that's been incredibly wonderful and rewarding and nurturing. And, uh, you know, it just feels good to be part of that. Yeah, that's awesome. I really um, have learned so much about that kind of sense of community and culture from Danny. And and even I feel like I know very many kind of secular Jews who still love the camaraderie and and love the uh, the feeling of home and the culture. And that's something that is really unique and I think really special about Judaism. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit, tell us about your congregation. Um, we would love to just kind of start out there and then we'll ask maybe uh, get dive into some of the challenges that you face in a region like Appalachia. All right. Well, frankly, the congregation is a longstanding one. It was established in the 1870s, and it was one of the founding members 
for the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which became the Union for Reform Judaism. That's the reform group that exists today. Um, it has a long and illustrious history. And, you know, that's that's great. That's because Charleston, being situated as it is in terms of placement for rail and, and road and water and all the rest, was a wonderful center for commerce. And so there were lots of Jews who were here at one point, and, and they came here and they thrived. And the community grew to be large. There are actually two congregations, as you probably are aware. Um, the other one is B'nai Jacob, and it's not far away, and I'm very friendly with Rabbi Yerecki there. Um, the fact is that both congregations were at one time large and thriving and growing and doing wonderfully. Um, and that was the, the heyday. But of course, as you know, as all of West Virginia has suffered, um, things have turned around in many ways. And so it's it's a, a very different picture today. Um, I'll just stick to the congregation for the moment. It's, um, it's a smaller congregation, and there are about 100 members. Members means a household, in effect. Um, it could be you know, one person, it could be a couple, it could be a family. Um, but that's, that's roughly the, the way we are able to estimate it's 100 members. And, um, and, and what happens is, looking at that, it's a shrinking number, right? It has been shrinking for years and years, and that's true for both congregations here, but all throughout West Virginia. Um, it's a graying population. So as you can imagine, the members are older and getting older as we go along, and our average age is considerably above retirement age. So, um, And the, the sad news is that there are no children, because, of course, what we would have, if anything, is grandchildren. But their children, the people who are members here, their children have moved away. And I think mm. we see that in West Virginia in general. So there's not a lot of youth. Um, and that's sort of a, a sad commentary on what's going on because they didn't see a future. And they didn't see something for the long term. The hope I have is that that will ch change, obviously. And and you know, I continue to maintain what's here as best I can and to try to build it because the people who are here are still interested. They're still active. They're still participating in many ways, not, not just in terms of services. So again, not everybody wants to attend services, as you can imagine. But we deal with social action. We deal with uh, leading organizations and community outreach. Um, we do lots of different things, and it's been really wonderful. So the congregation is well integrated into the, the community at large. It has held, I mean, there are members of it who have held uh, different positions in the community. Um, we have folks who are um, active in the political realm, uh, elected and, you know, other types of offices and roles. Um and they certainly are involved with civic activities. Um, 
So, you know, we have a, a pretty good rapport with many people and most people. Um, and, and the question I think underlying what you're, you're asking is a little bit about how things work, how we get along. So mm-hmm. you know, leading to the, the whole issue of is there anti-Semitism? The answer is on a personal level, one-on-one, almost nobody reports anti-Semitism, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's just not something we feel or see in, in most cases. There are rare instances where something comes across that way. On the other hand, as a wide swath of the, the larger community, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's built in. And it's, you know, sometimes it's unconscious. Sometimes it's just not something they see. It's the, this whole concern of, you know, certain language that's used, certain things that are thought about. But there also is a strong um, sense that Jews are a danger and a, a problem and and somehow they are running the world or they are uh, having a, a strong influence in places they shouldn't. <clears throat> and of course, I don't know where that comes from specifically, but it, I, I mean, here I don't. I know that historically we can pin it back to a number of things, but um, and, uh, you know, some of the comments that were made at times by specific individuals within the church. Sometimes it was people who were in politics, so people who were in banking and and or, or otherwise had deals and money that was owed to Jews. And an easy way to get rid of that debt was to get rid of the Jew that it was owed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know historically is something that went on forever. Um, so. On the one hand, I will say that there has been historically a sense that we need to be careful and keep our heads down a little bit. On the other hand, there is a sense that we're safe and comfortable and don't have to worry on an individual level. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very it's a very mixed picture. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that that an identity um, that that people that people have preconceived notions about is an identity that has a complex relationship to the culture around it. Um, and so I, I, I really, I hear that and I, um, I want to kind of see, uh, you know, is, are there broader religious and cultural communities in the state that, that, the, that your congregation or that Jewish folks um, engage with maybe in an interfaith way, um, you know, to to work on some of the issues that you care about, because, you know, the Jewish population in a state like this is so small. So what is the 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 place for Jewish people in that broader religious and cultural community? So I, I have to say that that's one of the things that's most encouraging, frankly. Um, the interfaith community has been wonderful and welcoming and warm and really opened their arms and embraced the Jewish community in large measure. We have had great reception from others, and we feel really warm towards them and would go out of our way to help them as well. So, for example, the Islamic community is one that we are very close with and, and spend a lot of energy and time working on joint projects. But the the churches in general, the Council of Churches, is one of the groups I work on several committees for. 
Um, and, you know, I obviously don't qualify as a member since <laughs> I'm not a member of the church. So, uh, but they, they are certainly welcoming. In fact, they invite me and they they insist that I be in part there to, to add a voice that is a voice of something different. Um, and and that's true everywhere I've gone. I, I cannot say that there's any part of the faith community that has been contacted that I have had any negative reaction from or any anything. There's there clearly is a difference in, in approach and and in their values and so on. And the, the ritual, um, often the those who are least uh, familiar with interfaith activities are, are the ones who have difficulty with language issues. So you know it's uh, you know, everything finishes you know in Jesus's name or whatever mm. in terms of prayers or comments being made. Um, and, and, you know, it's very hard for me to fault them in any way. That's not intentionally problematic, but it's just the custom and the way they act and in their own life. And so, you know, that's it. But other than that, frankly, um, it's been good. The ones that don't want to deal with Jews, I have no interaction with because they don't, want to deal with Jews. And I'd say most of them don't have much to do with interfaith groups at all because right. that's not their thing. And, you know, so be it. Um, I do know that in Charlottesville, when I was in the, in the ministerial alliance there, uh, there were, boy, the tensions were really interesting, but it wasn't directed at Jews. It was fascinating because certain of the evangelicals didn't think the other Christians were really Christians and they wouldn't deal with them. They wouldn't pray with them. They wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. and it was, you know, they were happier talking to me than to them. And uh, it was, it was completely you know out of my familiarity, but that's how it worked. And I think the same is true here in some ways. I think there are people who won't interact but, but I just, I can't say that there's been any negative. And I really feel, feel good about the people that I've encountered and, and worked with. And it's part of the reason that I think that Jews are accepted so widely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's like a real, it's really beautiful. Um, I uh, want to ask you a little bit, something I, I didn't actually put in our notes in the beginning, but something you said sparked this. Um you know, being in, in an interfaith marriage like I am, it was very difficult to actually find somebody who would marry us. Um, and and I was just wondering, you know, the Jewish diaspora, I mean, we're seeing these numbers of there are lots and lots of Jewish young people who are marrying outside the faith. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what is the place for interfaith couples, for folks who uh, may have maybe one parent who's Jewish and they've married outside of Judaism and they want to explore it, but they don't really feel Jewish enough in quotation marks. Um, you know how, right, exactly. So, so how, how would you approach those folks? Are those people welcome in your congregation? Oh yes. You know, we, I, we basically have a completely open door. So the, the idea is anybody can come in anyone. And last week we had um, a, a set of, well, a group of people who came in from United Methodist Family Service House, um, the residents there, there were students, uh, and we were delighted. We were really thrilled to have them come because it gave us an opportunity 
to do a little education by by their observation and then to talk to them and get a chance to know them a little bit. Um, but yeah, in terms of interfaith couples and so forth, I have to say it's not the same for every congregation or for every rabbi. That's one of the issues that happens. I know that, for example, Rabbi Yurecki is currently limited. He's not permitted to do inter -wedding, interfaith weddings. Um, I am. And I, it's a matter of conscience and what I choose to do. And I have and I will and I, I do. Um, uh, it, it, the only thing I'm capable of is leading a Jewish ceremony. So it's got to be a Jewish ritual because I don't know any other. But, you know, other than that, it's pretty clear. I, I do them. Um, the people are absolutely welcome. Um, they are certainly invited to be part of the community. And quite frankly, in a congregation like this and many others, specifically and particularly in the reform world, mm -hmm. half or more of the, the couples that are members are interfaith couples. So, you know, it's not as if it's unknown or, or they're the only ones. Um, they may be the youngest ones if they're coming in like you, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's wonderful to hear. I think that um, I think that there are, you know, some folks who may be looking for for a home, maybe us included. Um, so <laughs> that's great to hear. And I, so I want to go back a little bit to um, just how. Jews across the globe are are really used to being in the minority and are a small percentage of the population. In West Virginia, that's no different. And so that status can kind of feel very acute in a place like Appalachia. And so I, I wanted to just get your thoughts on on Jewish placemaking in Appalachia and how um, how we can begin to like make being a Jewish Appalachian person, an identity that is well-rounded and whole. That may be too big a task for me, but I'll try. Um, I, I will say that, you know, obviously living in Appalachia, Jews are a definite minority. They're, they're, I, let me just do some of the numbers, if you don't mind. We're almost Please. invisible numerically because our guess, and there is no real census, there's no way to know, but our guess is that we have no more than 1,200 Jews in the Charleston region, surrounding areas, and perhaps 1,000 through the rest of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. So that's you know 2,200. We're talking in the 1% or less category. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know all these people who are busy saying we've taken over everything, we're just too busy for that. Sorry, I don't have time. So, um, so we, again, we're truly a minority in that way. But at the same time, um, and this is the reason that there's so much more comfort and hope, I think, is Jews have had an outsized position and voice. They've stepped forward and taken the lead in so many things. Uh, in many ways, including in public office, in, um, in civic organizations, in serving the community, in areas of health, education, law, finances, and so on. And and so, because Jews, historically, because, I mean, this is the issue. If, if you're persecuted, you can't build things 
because they can be taken away. Yeah. So the historical pressure for Jews has been to take on things that would enable them to have both a living and a, a, a way of being part of a community that was portable. So mm-hmm. what that means is education, learning, skills, um, specific things. So if you're um, a silversmith or a goldsmith, or you are a lawyer or a doctor, you can carry essentially a small satchel with your tools or your books, and that's it. You don't need anything else. It's in your head. Yeah. So for that reason, Jews have focused in those areas. Those areas are often the ones that have great impact on not just a community, but a larger area, state, and even the nation. Um, they, they can make a big difference, and they certainly have a great impact. And, and for that reason, despite our shrinking and growing community, we have tremendous rapport with people in the community. The, the Jews have served as doctors in Charleston, have done so for years, they're, not, they're all now retiring they're because of, of their age and the length of service, and others are replacing them. But the fact is, they've made many, many connections. The same thing with the lawyers, the same thing with those who are in all kinds of fields. And, and so there's just a lot of personal capital, if you will, mm-hmm. that they've built up. And for that reason... Even being a minority, even being this tiny group, there is a sense that they're well integrated. And, uh, you know, that's not true everywhere, obviously. Yeah. But, but yeah, but it, it means that even being a minority, Jews first are more seen, and mm-hmm. that may be problematic when you have anti-Semitism, but it's... it's um, it gives hope that we can really count on and, and work with others because we've spent years doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's such a a bright and hopeful thought. I I really love that, and I it's funny because. Um, my my spouse is an attorney and his family had a very similar experience and and his father's an attorney and and his grandfather's a doctor and has they've said many of the same things that uh they well and his his grandmother actually was was uh born in vienna and and escaped uh the the nazis um via a nun a nunnery actually she she was a child who was in uh put into a convent um and they got her after the war so they they often his family has this lore um kind of just family lore of having to make it work <laughs> and and being new folks in in america and and uh, they have now most of his dad's side now have made Aliyah and they are back in Israel, um, which is a, a really interesting perspective as well. But um, yeah, that's one of the reasons that um, Danny ended up being an attorney. So that's uh, it's very that, that resonates a lot with me. Um, so 
you've spent a lot of time kind of in this northern Virginia, D.C., like over into Maryland and uh, and now in West Virginia. And like I said at the beginning, you know, D.C. has a thriving, huge, very active uh, Jewish community. They're visible. They're loud um, in, in a great way, in a really, really wonderful way. Um, and so I, I really, you know, when you came here, what are some of those major differences that other than you know, in the spirit of like just how many people there are that are Jewish in that area versus here. Um, but but what are some of the similarities and differences that you see with other Jewish communities that maybe are, are bigger than than the ones in West Virginia? So similar things happened as I went to Charlottesville and to Stanton and Harrisonburg um, and here. I mean, they're, they're, those communities, they're, they're not the same in any way, but they're uh, you know they they share some similarities, and one of the things that is true is they share the similarities of being different from the D.C. area significantly. Right, growing up in D.C., I know the Rockville area community. Uh, we would go to shop there frequently, um, Gaithersburg. So you know, it, obviously, that whole issue um, of, of a large, thriving, vibrant Jewish community being there was was a big thing. It was also interesting because what I found, and this is anecdotal only, but what I found for myself was that having that community there meant that I was immersed in it much of the time, and I didn't have relationships outside it nearly as much, right? So, it became obvious to me whether I was in Charlottesville or whether I was here that the relationships I was building were not within the Jewish community, though those do exist in there. But but by necessity, I had to be more out in the larger community and active in that way. It, it mimics in some ways what I was told some years ago, not after I'd left the Hillel at, at UVA, uh, a young woman who was there and was the president of the, the Student Hillel Association had come from um, Long Island. And she said that the reason she came to Hillel was because when she arrived in Charlottesville, she found that there was no Jewish pond that she was swimming in. That's kind of the way she described it. And that she had to make her own, right? And it was a different world. So she yeah. got involved, right? And and I think there's some of that. Um, there's great advantages to being in a large community. It, it gives you a lot of support and many amenities. There's no Jewish community center here. There's not, no, not, there's not a Jewish deli in reach. <laughs> <laughs> really sorry to have to say that, but it's true. Um, but the fact is the essentials are here, right? Mm. There are faith communities. There are people who share um, the same values and are willing to work with me on projects. There are so you know all of the things that matter. I can find. Sometimes I have mm -hmm. to make them. Sometimes I have to reach beyond any Jewish co connection to find a way to make them work. But they still exist and and they're real and they're valuable. 
And so it, it is very much, and I guess the thing I'm saying to you is, it's a sense that though you can benefit from being in a large community and it makes it much easier, in some ways, I don't think if you're in that community, you appreciate what you need to be taking in and and putting out as well as much. Yeah, I um, everything that you're saying sounds a lot like Danny, actually. <laughs> So he um, he grew up in that community and uh, he said to me once that he assumed that people that he met were Jewish until he went to college. And that was wild to me because I grew up in rural Western North Carolina. I knew exactly two Jews <laughs> in rural Western North Carolina, and um, they were like very different than the Jews that Danny that I've met with with Danny and they were like very mountain people. They, they had these t-shirts literally that that said mountain Jews in the Mountain Dew logo. <laughs> and um, so it was just a really different experience. I met those, those folks through Boy Scouts actually um, with my brother. And so it, it really, this, this idea of having to be out there and realizing what you have uh, is it resonates because I think that, you don't you don't have to be Jewish to understand that you should g kind of get out of of your own circle and, and experience the world. And I feel like that that exists in so many aspects of, of folks lives, whether it's, you know, for me growing up Methodist or or even growing up in a certain region, just experiencing more of what's out there makes you more grateful for what you have. And I, I think that that's a, a universe, really a universal lesson. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and and I'm not trying to say that this is unique to Jews. It's just a fact uh, yeah, of being in a community and not really having any sense of what's out beyond it, which is why sort of interactions with others and especially interfaith and and just other types of communities is so valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I do want to go back to anti-Semitism just a little bit. Um, and there's been an undeniable rise in anti-Semitism in, in the recent years. Um, it's incredibly pervasive in our country on the right and on the left. I, I just want to make that very abundantly clear here um, that that we are not uh, saying that this is like just a, a right wing problem. Um, and so have You've, you've talked a little bit about your specific, the members, you, you guys don't experience it on a, on a regular basis, but this rise in anti-Semitism has certainly caused a conversation in the Jewish community. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts more broadly on combating anti-Semitism and how folks who are not Jewish can be allies to the Jewish community. Combating anti-Semitism is something that's been going on for many years. And I mean, this is not what anyone wants to hear necessarily, but my sense is that it's not a winnable battle because it's it's internal and it's taught um, in the home and, and, and in places where you can't reach and by the time you do have that conversation or have the opportunity to speak to people it's it's already in in their system and they don't even know it's there mm. 
So, so I'm not terribly hopeful about erasing or eradicating it. All I think we can do is educate so that perhaps some of the people will figure out that they may have been given false information or, or mistaken information or whatever it might be. Um, you know, as far as how people can be allies, it's just simply to know that a little bit of sensitivity about language, a little bit of sensitivity about things like holidays and such makes a huge difference. Um, you know, it, it's tough. I have to say, I grew up dreading whether, you know, homecoming would be on the high holidays, mm -hmm. right? So you'd be sitting there going, does the school system pay any attention at all? Do I count? Whereas, you know, you'd talk to, to friends who are in New York City and they closed down for the entire time because yeah. all the teachers and everybody else they had were Jewish and weren't coming in. So the students weren't going to get taught anyway. And a lot of them were Jewish. So it's a very different world. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is very much about local. But but allies are people who are willing to open their eyes and open their ears and simply take in the fact that there's something that troubles others um, and then try to make it better. Um, and, and that's what I hope to do for the Islamic community. That's what I hope to do for the Baha'i community. That's what I hope to do just all across the board. The answer is the more I can be a partner by knowing what's going on and knowing what might be troubling them and trying to head it off and certainly not contribute to it, mm -hmm. the better it is. Yeah. Yeah. Simple kindnesses. So my, my last question for you, I think is, um, is uh, unless you have anything else you want to touch on, I, I wanted to just ask you as generally a religious leader in Appalachia, what's your message to folks who may feel like they don't belong here or that there isn't a place for them based on not just who they worship, but who they love and what they look like and what their identity is? Um, what's your message for them? And uh, if you had any words of wisdom for us on how we can continue making Appalachia in general, a more welcoming place for all people. So what I need to say, and it's my experience, but also what I've observed, the people here in this area, Appalachia, are among the warmest, kindest, most welcoming that I've met. I don't know, you know that there aren't any others who are similar, but this is, from my experience, from my lifetime, for, for what I've seen and done, this is a place where you know, people will really smile and mean it and welcome you and be open armed to bring you in and 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 get out, go out of their way to do what you need help with. Um, they're they're incredible, and they don't look at whether you're driving, you know, a fancy car or or how you're dressed or what your religion is particularly. They're always curious about that, frankly, but it's a different issue. <laughs> uh, um, and I don't think that, I, I mean, I can't say specifically because it's not my thing, but but I don't think that they're asking if you are, you know, trans or, or gay or lesbian, whatever it might be. 
I think they don't they don't think about that um, in an individual one on one kind of interaction. It just doesn't matter, right? When you know, if you ask them about should there be such things, they may come up with a completely unrelated answer that you won't like. But it, it and and but it's not applied on that individual level. And so here, for the most part. I really feel good about the conversations, about the, the things that I've experienced and the people I've encountered. And I think others would as well. And I think they should give it a shot because it, it's really just really heartwarming. Um, there's not much else I can say except that, you know, it would be nice if people did come and look and see and, and feel because I think that would convince them completely. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Rabbi, um, for joining us on the show. Um, stick around for one second, because I want you to meet Danny. I brought him in here. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate this and appreciate your time deeply. And it is it's important to me um, as the co-host of the show that we have Jewish voices on. And so I'm really, really grateful to you. I'm delighted to have been asked. I'm happy to talk to you. It was fun. And uh, hope that you can use some of what I said. There might be some days that I don't feel. Maybe some days I don't feel Well, that does it for our episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Check us out on the social media and check out our Patreon. Check out our merch store. Follow us on all of that, and we will see you again next week. At Podlatch is a show made and produced by Chuck Core and Callie Pruitt. None of the views expressed on this show are a reflection of either Chuck or Callie's employers, and they never will be. 